Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, A History of the Thirty Years' War. After four long episodes, we finally reached, well, the war. Well, I hope you guys are excited because this was a, definitely a change of how I structured the episode, but I got it done. Before we get into the events, I wish to outline a few important figures that we should know about before we go in. The general pattern for the rest of this podcast is I will most likely, when important figures appear, I will, at the start of every episode, give a brief rundown of a backstory for them. No more than a minute or two, just so you get a feeling. So when I say their name, you're like, huh, who's that? And I don't interrupt the flow of the story. With that, let's start with our first persona dramatis. Our first person is Christian of Anhalt. He was born on May 11th, 1568 in Bernburg. He was the second son of the Prince of Anhalt, Joachim Ernest. He was educated throughout Europe in his youth, and, he, and actually he went on several diplomatic trips, including to Constantinople. In 1586, he took possession of his father's lands, and also during that time he grew from Calvinist sympathies to a full Calvinist. Later, around 16, or in the early 1600s, the land was split between his brothers and his half-brothers, and he got Bernberg out of the split, a.k.a. the town where he was born. An important fact for us to know is in 1595 or so, he became the governor of Upper Palatine, which is the western border of modern-day Germany along the Rhine, sort of southwesty, and he served under Frederick IV. The last thing you need to know about him is he was the founding member of the Protestant Union in 1608, which they will be mentioned later in this episode. Oh, and by the way, if I mess up any of these names, some of them are Czech, German, or whatever, uh, I apologize, I'm, I'll try my best. And if you want to send me a message saying how it's supposed to be said, by all means, tell me. I would love to know how it's pronounced in the native tongue. The second person I want to talk about is Count Gindrich Matthias Tern Valsasina. He was born on February 24th, 1567, in Bohemia. So he was a, a native Czech. He served with skill and distinction against the Ottomans during the 1590s. I will cover this in a later episode, but throughout the 15th and 16th centuries, the Ottomans and HRE slash Austria were, had on and off wars against the Ottomans. And due to his skill, he became a military marshal within Bohemia, and using that and his general connection to the nobility, he earned a decent amount of land for himself, especially through his marriage. The last important fact that needs to be known about him is he was a devout Protestant, most likely Lutheran. The last person I'm going to talk about here is Emperor Ferdinand II. He was born July 9th, 1578. Differently enough, he was actually not a child of Matthias or a nephew or anything like that. He was a member of the Habsburg family, but not directly related to Emperor Matthias, who was childless. Emperor Matthias is the guy I mentioned at the end of my Habsburg episode at, with the he didn't really do much and made things worse. Yeah, that, that guy. He ruled the inner Austrian provinces in 1597 and 1598 and was involved in various conflicts with the Ottomans. He later was involved in the conflict between Rudolf II and Matthias, which became known as the Brothers' War. Initially, he was on the side of Rudolf, and, but switched sides to Matthias when it was sort of clear he was winning and he suited his ambitions better. He was more or less supportive of Matthias, except for measures such as when, in 1610, Matthias gave concessions to Protestants in terms of religious freedom and the like. That was because he was a hardcore Catholic. In his land, he tried to remove Protestant priests, take their lands, etc. He was not reconciliatory towards Protestants. Matthias, as I will sort of cover in a little more detail in this episode, as he sort of fell into older age and sickness, Ferdinand became the widely recognized successor to him, even getting the support of the rulers of Habsburg, Spain, to sort of back his claim, in return for some land concessions. 
Now that's covered, let's start with the lead up to the defenestration. I promise you, this isn't gonna be a whole episode about the lead up, it's just there's more direct events that need to be covered. So if you've been watching all my other episodes, you would have remembered that there was a wide tension growing between Protestants and Catholics that was being sort of exacerbated up to the war. Post-1600, there was a growing set of conspiracies and alliances between various Catholics and Protestants within their own groups. Both sides were trying to sabotage each other's efforts, including trying to destabilize these alliances, like, for example, the Protestant Union, like I mentioned under one of the previous people, was formed in 1608 or so, and had issues because Calvinists and Lutherans had trouble getting along. One of the funny facts was that this, the disunity between the various Protestant sects and various Protestant religions, it made it harder for the Catholics to raise up fears of a Protestant to overthrow the government or those types of deals because they were seeing that these people were squabbling politically. So basically, one side failing at unifying made it harder for the other side to unify, which is just kind of a a funny fact, honestly. So during that time period, there actually seemed to be a a loosening of the pressure due to the Protestant disunity and the lack of Catholic sort of initiative to deal with that, for better or for worse. Another event in the lead-up to the to the war was the Palatinate, which, like I mentioned, is sort of southwest-ish Germany. I will post a map to give you exactly where it is. But basically, that became a big part of the Protestant holdings and a center of a center of their power. It was hard to dislodge it by the Catholics. Christian of Anhalt, in particular, like I mentioned, became a leading figure in the Protestant camp, especially as a military commander, and his role was also serving as a governor at some point within the Palatinate, increasing Protestant influence. Christian Anhalt realized that many of the moderate Protestants weren't zealous enough to want to fight against the Catholics. They were happy to sit in sort of, not silence, but sit in tolerance and just get along with their lives. So he realized he needed to radicalize many of these Protestants to to gain support, which included in places like Bohemia, which includes the city of Prague, which, as I will cover later, will create a big problem. An interesting little fact that I found reading reading one of my books was that many Protestants became obsessed with sort of end-time prophecies. They saw this growing religious tension and, and sort of skirmishes in that deal as signs of the end times. The Catholic Church at the time was sort of backing off from that position. They were not really focused on end times. It wasn't that it was like officially denied, it just was not really their focus. Some of the zealotry and fervor came from Protestants wanting to do what they could before the end times came and earned their place in heaven. That sort of deal. Unfortunately for him, his efforts of radicalization were not as effective as he wanted. One of the issues going around was there was a lot of mudslinging going on between various Protestant lords and princes. And especially arguing over religious grounds and whose beliefs are right, etc. Just a lot of dirty mudslinging that he couldn't stop or really get people on his side. The, the last sort of straw that came about, the man who would become Ferdinand II, like I mentioned earlier, he would effectively become the ruler of the HRE by 1618. And one of the ways he, he got that power was he maneuvered the Hungarian nobility to claim the support of the Hungarian crown for himself. It was a whole mess of, technically Matthias had the crown of Hungary, but to do a new person, that had to be, the vote had to be done in person with the emperor there, but he found a loophole. It was a long, rigorous process, and through loopholes, he secured the crown of Hungary, which effectively secured his rulership over the empire. The defenestration of Prague was a shocking event that sort of rapidly happened, at the, sort of at the time when it happened. One of the reasons 
was there was insecurity among the Bo- the Bohemian Protestants about their foundation and their support. There wasn't dedicatedly Protestant. Many members of the leadership were Protestant, but they weren't as sort of secured or history as say like the Catholic rulers. Another issue was there was a growing dissatisfaction among Bohemian nobility that the Habsburgs either wouldn't or couldn't deal with. Some of it was their fault, some of it was something they should have done to avoid this, but in the end it stoked fires and a lot of nobility weren't necessarily wanting to talk peace. One of the biggest complaints coming from the Bohemian Protestants, especially, was in around 1611 or so, or 1609, the Emperor Rudolf II signed something called the Letter of Majesty, which across the empire, especially in Bohemia, strengthened the religious tolerance of Protestants and sort of in their rights. He basically was doing it with his arm twisted behind his back a little bit. But Ferdinand, as a hard a devout Catholic, felt that these terms were unfair and that they didn't need to be followed. The Bohemians, however, disagreed with him. Basically, the Catholics were, were taking Protestant lands, kicking out Protestant churches, removing the leadership of the Protestant priests and lands. They weren't killing them. They were telling them they couldn't be there anymore. Stopping a uh, building of Protestant churches, that sort of deal. Several nobility, one, one notable pe- people being Count Thurn, as I mentioned earlier, he was one of the two members of the Imperial Diet. The Diet was the officially recognized body that would elect the Emperor. Uh, he was one of the two people who who disagreed and, and did not vote for Emperor Ferdinand's ascension to the throne. He realized it was easier to attack a, an advisor to the throne rather than the Emperor. That's a reoccurring theme across European history. He went after Cardinal Klesel, who he, he used as the scapegoat for all of the attacks against the Protestants. And sto- to stoke the anger of the people of Bohemia at, at that time. It eventually led to wider support among the Protestant population, including w- what he said was, and he said, in reference to what needs to be done, throw them out, out of the window, as is customary. This is actually a reference to an event in 1419, Hussite Revolt. The Hussites were a fairly successful armed revolt for a while until it was ultimately crushed, but what happened was the mayor and councillors of Prague were murdered sort of by throwing them out the window during during the beginning of that. Uh, Prague was a big area of religious contention. So what happened next was the conspirators gathered up five of the council, the Catholic councillors in sort of the royal palace or the governor's palace, basically the govern- the head of the government in Prague. It wasn't technically a hostage situation, but in all effect, it was it was hostage. Their, their initial complaint at the time was about the halting of the construction on Protestant churches, like I, like I mentioned, but that was just a face for the wider religious conflict that was going on. Eventually, Catholics realized this was a hostage situation, and two of them actually were let go for being modern and innocent of what the Protestants were accusing them of. It was clear that they weren't necessarily the ones that were leading the charge on this. Three of them, however, were sort of put on a informal trial by the Protestants. They went by the names of Willem Savada of, Ch- of Chom and Count Jaroslav Borita of Marcinice. And, the Ca- and there was also the Catholic secretary at the time who were the hardliners of the five. So as is defined by the word defenestration, which is to throw out a window, the, the three of them were thrown out the window. And funnily enough, they actually survived the 70-foot fall or so. There's actually, uh, I believe there's still a plaque where the guy supposedly landed. And they actually landed uh, relatively unharmed, bruised and maybe some minor injuries, but they actually were not hurt. One of the quotes in reference to what happened was one of the bystanders said, by God, his, his Maria has saved him, in reference to, I believe it was Willem Slavata. My favorite part of this, actually, is the secretary. He earned the title Von Hohenfall, which translates to Of the High Fall, I, at the, which I assume is supposed to be like a... 
it's a it's a it's a combat, not insults. Although it could seem as it can seem like that way in hindsight. And the immediate reaction to this event was both sides started prepping and marshalling forces. One thing to keep in mind is at this time period, this was just this would have just been seen as a revolt or a sort of a internal conflict in the HRE. No one knew this war was going to take 30 years and drag like half of Europe into it. It was just called the Bohemian Revolt at the time. The Protestants in the media reaction first they 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 wrote a letter explaining in their defense of why they why what they were doing was justified. The main point they used to cover that was the claims of constitutional abuse, which as we we covered, I believe, in the whole in the first proper episode of the podcast, there was a loose sort of constitution of the rights of nobility and the like. So they used that to sort of claim, hey, they were abusing our rights as princes. So we had the right to sort of defend ourselves, assert our authority in, ca- in cases like this. They also diverted all taxes at the time to, to help pay for military forces and especially mercenaries. The other tactic they did was they tried to defer to Matthias, the current emperor at the time, instead of his heir, because they knew Matthias was more moderate and maybe he, could, he would be more fair to them. Unfortunately, he was in sick health, so Ferdinand was the one in charge. One point that didn't help them initially was there was discord among the rebel leadership, particularly with Thurn, because many of them were sort of against him, his influence among the Protestants of Bohemia, and and some of them saw him as grabbing power. I don't think, I don't think it was that way. And they also, and they also were worried about that there was a lack of real great leaders. There was no great prince in charge of them. There was a couple of military leaders, but no one of note that they could take over. It ultimately turned out to be sort of the case of that in the end, but that is one thing of not having a solid leader figure behind a rebellion can create a lot of problems in the long run. On the Habsburg front, Ferdinand effectively, like I said, took command of the empire, and just under a year later, Matthias had died, and Ferdinand became the special ruler of the the HRE, and he started marshalling forces and and preparing for war. Uh, Klesel, the, the cardinal that was blamed for the abuse of the Protestants, he was scapegoated by the emperor and exiled to Rome under house arrest by the House of Cardinals. Uh, the Cardinals held a sort of trial for him, and they agreed with the charges of the emperor. The last thing I want to finish up on is I'm going to read part of the letter that was sent out as the apology or defense of their revolt against the Habsburgs and the, and the HRE. Yet nevertheless, the above-mentioned enemies of the king, land, and general peace spared no effort to find a way to negate the concord, which had both been de- desired and confirmed, and to carry out their evil, extremely dangerous, and pernicious intentions towards this kingdom and our successors. Thus, even at the time when the above-mentioned peace and accommodation were being made and ratified, they advanced other persons who were, like them, Catholics. And they refused to subscribe to the Letter of Majesty and the erected accommodations, or to the amnesty, by force of which we, with the help of Emperor Rudolph of Blessed Memory, were completely reconciled, and and all desire for vengeance among us and our followers were abolished. Instead, they strove... To abolish completely all this, truly proving their malicious disposition and intention towards quite a few members of the estates. Thus, using the Jesuits and other tools of theirs, these enemies once again began to issue a variety of abuse, slander, and denunciations against Protestants, giving giving people to understand both in public writings and by word of mouth that we were heretics with whom, according to their teachings, one was not bound to keep any faith either promised or prescribed, no matter its importance. They also dishonored us with all kinds of ignominious names, and demonstrated great contempt for our teachings in the Protestant religion, and in their libelous publications also proclaims that Protestants and all those who were not Roman Catholic had rejected the life of honor, thereby animating the secular authorities to use fire and sword to eradicate Protestantism. 
and so that they could all the more easily deceive the people and bring about mistrust among Protestant members of the estates, the enemies of this territory, and of the common peace who tried to sow division among defenders, who, with the gracious approval and ratification of his majesty, had for good reason been decreed to us to be protectors of our religion, something the oft-mentioned letter of majesty granted and approved, and thereby to abolish completely the Protestant consistory. I just wanted to say, once again, thank you for tuning into this podcast. Once again, once again, you can visit me on my website, threedecadesoftragedy.com, a Facebook page of the same name, or email me at 3decot at gmail.com. I will post relevant images of the, of the people that I mentioned in various locations on the map, and I hopefully will have another episode up by Sunday. So, way more than usual. And, and on another note, I'm thinking of setting up a Subscribestar or Patreon to maybe see if I can make some money out of this. Like, I'm not, I'm not asking you. I'm going to be putting out podcast episodes the same. I will not ask you to, I'll force you to pay money to see anymore. I will come out with more details about what I might offer or some stuff like that. I just wanted to let you people know and see, and see what interest there is. So if you're interested, send me an email, message me on Facebook. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Please rate and review my podcast if possible. And see you next time.